This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised. Diversion Podcasts. This is Backstage, The Devil in Metal. Unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode... I remember walking backstage and just seeing like guys from Orban Angels sitting around a chalice, cutting themselves and bleeding into this chalice. I thought, that's fucking crazy. You know, we just, I don't know, we played crazy music, but we didn't, you know, we didn't roll like that. Even though he wasn't a metal fan per se he appreciated what we were doing and, and considered it real satanic music and he actually mentioned us in his uh, one of his last books uh, Satan Speaks so I told Ozzy about you know what had happened to me and he wrote the lyrics as a warning to people that were getting heavily involved in black magic you know Ozzy was going on about you know the fucking elves or the fucking witches and this that and, that, and then all of a sudden he would get to the point and he would say oh god help me and I would say oh what the fuck you know what I mean like no you're supposed to be the evil bastard you know so I thought well I'll put that in my fucking songs then you gotta remember there were Manson murders there was superstition there was you know all sorts of really bad things going on about that back then it was like people were scared and it was me a sign telling me that you're fucking with the wrong thing man this is no joke around game and the stuff that you do to people you know comes back it's not cool to say you believe in god and heavy metal you say you believe in god you're a pussy Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil sends the beast with wrath, because he knows the time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. Okay. So we didn't have the budget to pay for the usage rights for the spoken word opening of Iron Maiden's song Number of the Beast from their 1982 album of the same name. But since I knew it would make such a killer opening for a show about metal and the devil, I did my best impression of English actor Barry Clayton, who recites the passages on the actual album. Real Maiden fans know the lines by heart anyway, and chant them along with the recorded intro of the song at the band's concert. So pretty much anyone into 80s metal knows the quote. But some fans might not know that it doesn't come from a movie or an occult book. It's actually from the Holy Bible, and it paraphrases two parts of the New Testament. Revelations chapter 12, verse 12, and Revelations chapter 13, verse 18. Iron Maiden bassist Steve Harris loves to tell stories of good and evil whether about the devil and God, the plight of Native Americans, or the horrors of war. And he really likes classic literature. 
To date, Harris has written songs based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Aldous Huxley, William Golding, and others. This may come as a bit of a bummer to all the kids over the decades whose favorite number, after hearing the song Number of the Beast, became 666. But like I said, Steve Harris only wants to tell exciting stories riddled with drama and conflict that match the band's multifaceted metal. Even so, Maiden's lack of serious interest in Satan and the occult was irrelevant to all those religious zealots in the 80s who heard the intro and saw the cover of the album. A picture of the band's zombie mascot, Eddie, using puppet strings to manipulate a pitchfork-carrying Lucifer. In other words, parents of metal kids lost their shit. Hi, and welcome to Backstage, a diversion podcast in association with iHeartRadio that goes behind the scenes of metal music into the exclusive after-show parties and onto the tour bus to deliver the stories behind the stories. I'm your host, author, and journalist John Wiederhorn, and in the first part of a two-part series, we'll discover the exact moment Lucifer poked his pitchfork into the cauldron of hard rock and look at the way bands invited the devil into their circle to enhance the heaviness and intensity of their music and image. We'll also discuss the social situations that drew kids to occult music and terrified their parents, including the satanic panic of the 80s, which, for metalheads, hit critical mass when tabloid journalist Geraldo Rivera put together a show that drew parallels between devil worship, metal, and murder. And we'll hear from veterans of the genre about how dancing with the devil can take its toll on listeners unprepared for the consequences. Who am I to take on such a blasphemous task? Well, I never got a master's in podcasting or anything, but I do have some credentials. Over the past 15 years, I've co-written the book Louder Than Hell, The Definitive Oral History of Metal, and written Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends which came out in early 2020. I've also co-authored the official autobiographies of Scott Ian from Anthrax, Al Jurgensen from Ministry, and Roger Moret from Agnostic Front. In the process, I discovered that the intensive research and interviewing that goes into writing books was far more fulfilling than working on shorter articles for magazines and websites. Seeking new horizons to explore and subvert, I discovered that podcasts were the ultimate forum for telling wild stories, engaging in some armchair analysis, and preaching to a new flock of metal fans tapped into the latest social media. So grab your crucifix, say your prayers, and get ready for some devilish fun. When metal gained a strong commercial following in the early 80s, there were lots of occult imagery and lyrics floating around. Ozzy Osbourne sang about satanic author and philosopher Aleister Crowley. Wasp vocalist Blackie Lawless drank blood from a skull. There were pentagrams and upside-down crosses everywhere, and God-fearing Christians, scared that their children were being lured into the jaws of Satan, made sacrificial pyres of their kids' metal albums and tapes. No guitar-blurring bands were safe from the inferno of melted plastic and vinyl. Today... Jesse Leach is the vocalist for Killswitch Engage, 
one of the leading figures in modern metal. Back in the early 80s, he was a kid whose parents thought listening to metal albums was as blasphemous as drinking baby's blood. Thanks to his brother, however, his cravings for volume wouldn't be denied. We grew up in a very strict Christian household where, um, you know, non-Christian music was forbidden. So um, he's kind of the one that got me, I wouldn't say got me into, yeah, I guess got me into metal. You know, he had Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast, he used to have to hide under his bed. And we used to listen to that when my folks were, were not around. Fear Factory guitarist Dino Cazares suffered a far more traumatic incident long before he discovered real satanic metal like Slayer and Venom. I was 15 and my dad sent me and my little brother to Larry, which is upstate. I, t- I brought all my records with me. I brought my record player with me so I could listen to music. Get back home from work one day. She threw them all away. All of them. And she was like freaked out. You know, she threw all my Iron Maiden, you know, all my Iron Maiden records, whatever, you know, Number of the Beast, all that stuff, ACDC records, Saxon records, all gone. Threw them away. And Saxon? I cried. Cried. Yeah, I had Saxon. They, but yeah, you but know, they like, weren't satanic. No, but I, those, I'm just saying those are the records that were in my collection. That I yeah, bought. yeah. You know, just to, you know, she threw all the records I had. So I just remember, if you want blood, you know, with, with Angus Young with the guitar going through his stomach, you know, Highway to Hell. She threw all those records away. Oh. And I was just crying. I, I was crying and crying. I called my dad. My dad's like, well, you, you're staying under her house. He was no help. Jesse Leach and Dino Cazares were just two of the many, many now-established musicians that fell under the blade of the Satanic Panic. To understand the roots of the Satanic Panic and the rise of devil metal, we have to look at the mind frame of American society when metal was at its peak. The parents of most metal fans were raised in the 50s and early 60s, when America was draped in a veil of lily-white conservatism, irrefutable patriotism, and obedience to authority figures. Then, in the late 60s, everything changed. The Manson murders shocked the nation. The Vietnam War went on and on and sparked the liberalism of the hippie protest movement. After years of economic prosperity, the U.S. struggled through two recessions and a gas crisis. To rebel against society, young people drank, took drugs, listened to rock and roll, and stopped obeying their elders. Freaked out parents needed a scapegoat for their fears. And what could be scarier than Satan? Of course, where there was fear, there was money to be made. Hollywood made big bucks from the 1968 Roman Polanski movie, Rosemary's Baby, in which a lapsed Christian gives birth to the devil's offspring in exchange for her husband's success as an actor. The wildest part of the movie comes at the end when Church of Satan founder Anton Zandor LaVey, dressed in full demonic regalia, welcomes Rosemary's baby into a world of hell and damnation. LaVey's church grew considerably over the next few years, and at one point included Sammy Davis Jr. and Jane Mansfield as members. In 1969, LaVey published the Satanism 101 textbook, The Satanic Bible 
which became a staple for curious metalheads from the 70s to at least the 90s. Controversial as it was, the Satanic Bible was more a philosophical text than a religious document, combining theories of Ayn Rand, Friedrich Nietzsche, and H.L. Mencken to support a doctrine of hedonism and self-empowerment embellished with some silly satanic incantations. Nonetheless, rockers and curiosity seekers snatched it up. As the occult craze grew, Ouija boards and tarot cards flew off the shelves, and Hollywood kept the black magic flowing. In 1973, the explosive success of The Exorcist cast a new light on demonic possession, green projectile vomiting, and crucifix masturbation, and opened the gates for more cinema horror. Tabloid journalists fanned the flames of panic and paranoia, and in 1988, Geraldo Rivera eagerly tapped into the hysteria with his TV special, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground, which, among other things, drew a connection between metal, Satanism, and murder. The show included images of albums by Iron Maiden, Ozzy Osbourne, Megadeth, and Slayer, and featured music snippets by Wasp, Venom, and Motley Crue. At one point in the program, Geraldo interviewed a teenage headbanger named Pete Rowland, who beat a high school classmate to death. Geraldo asks, Describe what this music did to you. Rowland replies, Things would go through my mind, and I could see the thoughts, seeing hurting someone, torturing people. And just along with the words, too, some of it was just all hail Satan, and ripping apart, severing flesh, gouging eyes. And after you listen to it for three or four hours a day, for years or months, it can get to you. The first lyric Roland cited was from the Merciful Fate song Black Funeral, and the second is from Slayer's Necrophobic. It goes without saying that Roland and the other metal-loving killers on Geraldo's show were dealing with family problems, personal issues, and mental illness long before they blamed the music they loved for the crimes they committed just as serial killer and Satanist Richard Ramirez was a sick puppy long before he left an ACDC baseball cap at a crime scene, and the press linked the Night Stalker to the band that wrote Night Prowler. Most metal fans are smart enough to realize that listening to dark, aggressive music is no more hazardous than reading Stephen King novels. They may have had long hair and ghoulish band t-shirts, but for the most part, they stuck to themselves and were largely non-confrontational. Some teens, like me, took advantage of the public's phobia about metal and, well, Satan. There was a short time in high school when, for some reason, I liked to make other students uncomfortable. So my friend Doug and I sat at a table at our school library. I pulled out a copy of the Satanic Bible from my backpack and we took turns reciting evil-sounding passages and incantations until the librarian ordered us to stop. Exodus and Slayer member Gary Holt and his friends took the let's freak out our peers thing a step further. Gary recalls having blood brother rituals with his friends, and when they were at a party and they wanted to shock the jocks, they took out their penknives and cut their thumbs. We'd be at a party, and if there were some people that were just from the outside, not part of our 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 clique, 
and we really wanted to like you know scare them out of the party we would do it we would like you know bleeding would begin (laughs) and you know in like the most minor ways you know like you know when you think of like cutters you know i'd I'd barely have a scar from any of it you know we'd get a little razor make this little tiny little cut like spread it on our faces you know like people those people go fleeing out of the door and we're all right now the assholes are gone we can have fun the first metal band to sing about the devil was black sabbath which pretty much invented the genre with their self-titled 1970 album. However, there was already an L.A. hard rock band, Coven, that weren't as heavy as Sabbath, but they were far more occult-oriented. And their first album, Witchcraft Destroys Minds and Reaps Souls, came out in 1969 and ended with a 13-minute-long Black Mass ceremony. I recently talked to Coven frontwoman Jinx Dawson, who said Coven were widely considered too controversial, and while the music industry wanted to cash in on the commercial potential of the occult, Coven were just too threatening, whereas Black Sabbath sounded louder, but, at least at first, were far less controversial. Do you remember that one guy in Rolling Stone? Who was the writer? He said Black Sabbath was a combination of Cream and Coven. I think it was Lester Bangs, right? Yeah. And that was like one of the only things in an ad in Rolling Stone. And then it was like we were blackballed. And, and, and we were. We were blackballed. We were taken out of the record stores. You have to remember, we came out, the single came out like around July, I think, in 69. And the album came right after that. Where There were Manson murders. There was superstition. There was, you know, all sorts of really bad things going on about that. And we had a very blasphemous then album. Of course, now this is just all ubiquitous, but... Back then, it was like people were scared, and I just think they wanted to kind of throw us under the bus and kind of... But they saw that the 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 magic occult slant was interesting, and they wanted to, you know, cash in on it. Dawson doesn't want to downplay the immense significance of Black Sabbath. She just wants to set the record straight. Another misconception that irks her is the widespread belief that Ronnie James Dio was the first singer to raise the sign of the horns in concert. We used to do the sign of the horns everywhere we went because people mix that up. The sign of the horns is, it's an acknowledgement sign, like you're one of the coven. You come to the door and they're going to have a coven meeting and they give that sign and they know they're part of that. I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, Please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at diversionpodcasts.com. As has been well documented, Black Sabbath leader and guitarist Tony Iommi and bassist Geezer Butler were certainly both interested in the occult, at least for a while. And Sabbath addressed the devil in the songs Black Sabbath and NIB, which quickly put them in the crosshairs of Christians and conservatives. But unlike Coven, the band members weren't actually Satanists. And as Geezer Butler told me, The band's interest in Ouija boards, tarot cards, and books about black magic stemmed from mere curiosity. It's 
an interest, you know. It was a big, as you say, it was a big um, fashionable thing at the time. There's loads of people into that, you know, the occult. Because we'd grown up as Christians in England, and then the Beatles had gone to India and brought, uh, you know, brought Hinduism and all that kind of thing to light. And it sort of springboarded from that really. Everybody started getting into learning about different religion, different spirituality. And that kind of thing, the occult, wherever. Ironically, the song Black Sabbath, one of the band's heaviest and most sinister-sounding tunes, was written after an experience Geezer had that turned him away from the occult. Once, in the middle of the night, he woke up and saw a hooded, menacing figure standing at the foot of his bed, pointing at him, and he couldn't move. I told Ozzy about, you know, what had happened to me, and he wrote the lyrics as a warning to people that were getting heavily involved in black magic. And if, you know, we got so misinterpreted on those lyrics, if you listen to them properly, it's a complete warning about getting involved in that stuff. If you're going to get into it, then be serious about it. Don't just dabble in it. Once Sabbath planted the seeds of evil, the devil became a far more prominent subject in rock. Bands like Bang, Black Widow, and Pentagram surfaced, the latter of which actually started out with darker ambitions than the guys in Sabbath. Pentagram frontman Bobby Liebling eventually abandoned his wicked ways, but only after he got a sign way stronger than a dream about a hooded figure. I, I was practicing all kinds of, you know, occult and Satanism and blah, blah, blah. I was uh, a member of the Satanic Church, <laughs> and there's only one in the D.C. area. And I thought that was cool stuff. You know, like Mito, you know. <laughs> and uh, did a lot of spells and incantations and was uh, in a coven, an actual coven. We were sitting there, we always kept a couple of copies of Van Bay's, you know, the original Satanic Bible. Mm-hmm. And all these books on witchcraft and spells and, you know, occultism and stuff. Uh, it was the 4th of July. I, we were sitting in the guy's basement, and it was a 4th of July that was one of the hottest ever in the entire D.C. area's history. It was uh, virtually 100 degrees, close to 100 degrees at night. We were sitting in the basement, and we were reading, you know, from the Bible and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I started to blow a little fog out of my mouth and was into the reading and hadn't noticed that the room had gotten ice cold, right? To the degree of blowing steam out of your mouth, right? After that, all the pipes in the entire basement formed droplets of water that became icicles. The basement windows covered with frost. Shit. And the entire room was, I would estimate, somewhere around 25 degrees. And this is in a matter of, mm, I'd say, 10 to 20 minutes. And this was while we were reading Satanism-related crap. And I got so scared, and I guess it was in a, a blink of an eye, thought back on all the stuff that I had done, you know, to people. To me, it was uh, totally 
almost, when I'm talking about it now, I'm jittery because it's like, it, it actually frightens me a whole bunch. My stomach's like, because <laughs> I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. It was, to me, a sign telling me that you're fucking with the wrong thing, man. This is no joke around game, mm. you know? And the stuff that you do to people, you know, comes back. By contrast, Jinx and Coven remained dedicated to the left-hand path. And long after they were rejected by the record business, they continued to throw decadent parties at their headquarters, Coven House, which attracted such musicians as Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, Alvin Lee, and John Lord. They also practiced rituals and, like Butler and Liebling, encountered forces that proved dangerous and terrifying. I had one bad incident and it, and it was in Chicago. Uh, the guys were just spending so much time doing this gorgeous circle with the snake and the colors, and they were so fascinated with all this, and they had this all drawn out in chalk on the floor. And I came in, and there was a bunch of smoke, uh, you know, in, in the place. So I quickly tried to uh, banish you know, whatever they had brought up. I wasn't really quite sure what they had brought up. And I, I, I quickly, I was caught off guard and I banished it into my cat. And I had a cat, a black cat named Paimon. And um, the next day I was very upset because the cat was smashed against the bricks behind the house where the refuse cans were and no cars or trucks could get back there. And it was smashed against the, the bricks about... Oh, I level to me. I'm five foot four. Uh, and what it looked like, John, was that the cat, something had been in the cat and went through the wall, but the cat didn't go through the wall. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So that's the worst thing that ever happened to me. But again, that was because they were playing with things that they weren't covering. They, they didn't banish the room. They didn't clear things. Um, so yes, they're... For people that think there isn't something else, but there are other things, because I've seen other things besides that, too, many things um, in my lifetime that are very strange. In his teens, Megadeth frontman Dave Mustaine was drawn to the darker side of metal as well and practiced satanic rituals for personal empowerment. In a 2008 interview, he told me he once wanted something bad to happen to someone, so he put a hex on the guy, and then the dude hurt his leg pretty badly. Later, he felt terrible about what had happened, and he wrote the song The Conjuring about the experience. When he became a practicing Christian, he stopped playing the song, since the lyrics included instructions for casting spells. He didn't play it at all between 2001 and June 2018. And now he lives by the words of the good book. I was baptized Lutheran, brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, you know, and uh, got into witchcraft and black magic and all that stuff. So I'm pretty well rounded with uh, religion and stuff. And I read the Bible and um, I did read some of Nostradamus' stuff, especially after the towers were hit. When you're searching, you'll read anything. It's, it's like that saying when the students say the teacher appears. You know, I was um, one of those guys that um, I, I was looking for anything 
you know, and, and, you know, I found what I believe works for me, being a Christian, and, and it's not cool to say you believe in God in heavy metal. You say you believe in God, you're a pussy. Heed the words of Dave Mustaine. Don't be a pussy. Keep listening to Satanic Metal. That's not what he meant, of course, but Megadeth's The Conjuring is a great song, and so is Sabbath's Black Sabbath, and NIB, and Maiden's Number of the Beast, and Slayer's Hella Waits. The list goes on and on. Metal and evil go together like chips and guacamole. And as long as you take the songs at face value, embracing them as pieces of music that tell scary campfire tales and sometimes contain imagery that's kind of like autopsy footage, you'll be just fine. And always remember, if you're too frightened, disturbed, or disgusted, just hit the stop button. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn, produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. production assistance from Anita Okoye, and our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends on Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. Podcasts.